Well, good morning, church. Uh, this series has been a, a great series. I'm grateful for others that have been a part of this, for, uh, for Keith and for Matt and for Greg, for the, for the role they've played. And uh, I hope you've seen how the book of Daniel relates to real life, to the lives that we're living in important ways. And that continues to be the case. The question in the book of Daniel we've looked at is, what does it look like to be a Christian in a culture that is increasingly hostile? toward the Christian faith, toward Christian life, toward what Jesus calls us to. And we've found in this book that there are times where Daniel calls us to stand up and to speak up and to disobey any earthly kingdom in light of what the kingdom of God calls us to. We see that in light of uh, the, the fiery furnace scene with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow down and they're thrown into the fiery furnace and experience the salvation of God. The same thing happens with Daniel. Daniel refuses to quit praying to his God when the decree is made that he'll be thrown to the lions if he continues to do it, and he stands up and he does opposite of the king's request. And yet there's this tension because other parts in the book, we see that in order to gain influence, Daniel is not bothered by some of the things that seem to bother us in our culture. And so he finds influence through uh, basically living in gray areas and trying to move alongside and honor kings that are not godly kings because it's the kings that God has in place at the time. There's this tension that we have in our culture as Christians. When do we stand up and when do we find influence? What is that tension that we live in? And every week as a preacher, I guess I have that tension as well, right? (laughs) In the midst of culture, what are the Sundays where something needs to be a diversion from the plan because things are just such a heightened pace that something has to be said to frame our experience and our calling in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning's one of those mornings I feel the need to do that. Obviously, many of us had our eyes glued to the televisions the last 48 hours, from late night torch rallies to the violence of yesterday. And I think it's important for us to say as churches that all humans are created in the image of God. When I got into ministry, I never assumed I would have to affirm that statement. And I know that all Many of us trust and try to live into that as well as we possibly know how to. But all of us, I think, admit there are parts of our lives where we don't trust the truth of that. That's not borne out in a segment of our culture. Uh, Last night, I got a message from a pastor that was uh, retired now, was in Denver with me. I knew him then. He's moved to the other side of the Metroplex here. And he was talking about a breakfast that he had yesterday and talking about the tension in our country and specifically what had happened on Friday night in Charlottesville. And and. And as he shared that experience, he said, I was at breakfast with these guys, and somebody actually quoted from Genesis 9 that the curse of Cain was a curse on the African people, that a skin color is the mark of the curse from Genesis 9. Now, this is the stuff that was preached in slavery times in the 1850s. And unfortunately, as much as we want to think this is done away with, this is still a reality that undergirds some of the practice that we live out and what undergirds the racism in our our culture. But I have to say this morning, as I know many of you can affirm, racism and hatred are anti-Jesus. They're anti-Christ. And Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says something that we need to affirm again this morning, that those who've been baptized into Jesus Christ, there's now no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We were all one in Christ Jesus. What happens in the waters of baptism is all the ways that the world divides us and cuts us up and divides us into differing parties, what that does is it says, no, this identity is more important than all those things. 
Whether people are believers in Jesus or not, they're created in the image of a creative God, a God who loves us. And there is no supremacy on any other noun that we can give other than the supremacy that God has. The enemy hates unity. The enemy hates when a body of believers says there are things more important than the things that divide us because the evil one sows discord and incites violence. Church, we are, not a pe- we are not a people of the past. We're not a people that highlight past moments and talk about them and in some ways have nostalgia about them, not remembering the truth of them. We are people of God's future. We are people that know that where we are headed one day in God's he- new heavens and new earth, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, language, and color. And we might as well get used to that now and begin to embody it in better ways than we've known how to. We need to seek better ways of reconciliation. Because we need to be a standard to the world that looks at us to say, how could those people so different stand together? And the answer we have is we're created in the image of God who loves us, who has sent his son Jesus, and we've been baptized into that name. And all other distinctions are secondary to our commitment to Jesus. This is one of those moments I think we have to stand up because the reality is this is not going to end at Charlottesville. It's going to continue to other cities. And should it come to Dallas, the church needs to be a beacon of light that speaks another word from the word of hatred and racism. We are people who will love. We will love the oppressors, and we will love those who are oppressed. We will love all people. This morning, I want to close this time with just a a public prayer together. I want to pray the Lord's Prayer together, a, a prayer that many of us have memorized from you. And in that prayer, what it says is, what we plead to God for is, God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, all of us are going to be together despite the distinctions that we divide up uh, by on, at 11 o'clock on, on Sunday morning so often. It's time to live into that in better ways. I want to seek your prayers with me, if you would, for this prayer, to pray God's future into the present, to pray the reality of how God intends for it to be now, even now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now to Daniel, which might have something to say about this as well. Daniel 1 to 6 is a, 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 an easy passage to preach. There's all kinds of great stories there. It's the historical portion of Daniel. Stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery forest, uh, furnace. Uh, stories about Daniel in the lion's den. Stories about riding on a wall. Stories about food that's not eaten by Daniel and his friends. And many of the questions the book of Daniel addresses are questions we're still asking today. How do we maintain our distinctiveness in a culture that looks so different from the desire that Christ has? Is it okay for the people of God to serve unjust rulers or bosses who have ungodly behavior? How should a Christian leader seek to influence the world when compromise is always a seductive option? Who's in control of who is in control? And does God have the power to save in miraculous ways even today? The book of Daniel is interested in those questions and is a helpful guide for those of us who are sorting through similar questions of our own. Because the book of Daniel is interested in the same questions, and yet while there are many similarities, there are vast differences between that culture and ours. 
we cannot forget the distance that separates that history from today. We cannot forget that Daniel 7 through 12 is written to a specific people in a specific time. And Daniel 1 through 6 are the stories we love to tell at VBS. They're the children's stories we love to tell our kids. But Daniel 7 through 12, well, it's a bit different. If you've read ahead, you know this is a little bit troubling to try to In fact, I wanted to end the series last week, if I'm honest. Because the first half stuff we're familiar with. But 7 through 12 is all kinds of crazy stuff. From lions with eagles' wings to a beast that looks like a bear. To a leopard beast with four wings and four heads. A beast with ten horns. A ram with two horns that's knocked over by a goat. Angel Gabriel shows up to try to to make any sense out of this. And then finally, the angel Michael has to show up and begin to clarify what Gabriel seems to not be able to. So today, I'm going to explain for you all that in about 25 minutes. And before I do any of that, I think I need to say a prayer this morning. God, we, we invite you into this space. And we ask that you would bring alive this text that is really hard to understand, God. But we believe that there's life that's found here through your spirit. And so, God, I pray this morning that you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. But there's a lot of important factors that are important to look at when we interpret Scripture and read it well. And one of those factors is the factor of genre. Genre. And in our culture in 21st century America, we have cues that tell us the genre and what to expect from those cues. For example, if you read the news, breaking news, and it showed up on your phone, uh, there's certain things you would anticipate on the other side of that news. There's something that you may read that may just change your life or the life of others around the world. But if you were to see a different cue, a cue that said, once upon a time, a different set of cues emerge. Because that cue tells you that you're okay to let down your guard, that this is really more of a fictional story, and there may be a truth that's to come out of it, but uh, you start to believe the unbelievable when you hear that phrase, once upon a time. You let your guard down to hear the story and what comes from it. We suspend reality when we hear that cue. And genre is such an important factor in our reading of Scripture, and we do Scripture a disservice when we fail to see the different genres that are there within it. Uh, For instance... I read the Psalms very differently than I read the Gospels. Because the Psalms are the written prayers of people in the midst of anguish. They're people, it's like reading the diary of a person who's lifting up all their concerns to God. They're perfect places to go in the midst of times when I need words for prayers to God that I don't know how to pray. This is really, these are emotive language. It's poetry of sorts, right? But when I come to the Gospels, these are historical accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. So I expect something different when I come to the Gospels and what it will bring me rather than what the Psalms do. Same thing's true with Paul's letters versus Samuel and Kings, for instance, right? Samuel and Kings is an account of Israel's history and the time of their kinghood and and what happens in, in, in the flow of time after they enter into the promised land. But when I read Paul's letters, I know that Paul is addressing specific concerns and specific communities of faith. And I wish I knew sometimes what those questions were that Paul is answering. Or I wish I had videotape of the worship service he's, he's trying to somehow correct in some way. We don't have those things. We're reading secondhand literature. We read those things very different. Well, between Daniel 6 and Daniel 7, there's a genre change, a switch. From historical background and who Daniel is and the kings that he inhabits to this apocalyptic genre. There's several other places in the Bible where we see apocalyptic genre. Parts of Ezekiel, parts of Isaiah, Jesus actually in Matthew 24. There's a little bit of apocalyptic uh, imagery that he gives. But probably the most famous or most well-read would be the book of Revelation. 
But apocalyptic is really closely connected with a word that you might know better, apocalypse. And all that really means, as scary as that word may sound, is revealing or unveiling. This vision that Paul receives, the vision that Daniel receives, this is meant to pull back the curtains of the heavens and help Paul see more than the eye sees on earth. The apocalyptic genre was developed by Jewish leaders who were in a time under an oppressed regime where they were trying to tell a story about what God was going to do in the future, what God had revealed to them as an oppressed minority. So if you're an oppressed minority trying to tell about the doom of the empire that's over you, you don't write in literal language, right? You have visions about beasts that have this many horns and this many heads. They're epic stories of mythic proportions that tell about a time when those who are in charge will no longer be in charge. For example, the book of Revelation, John shares his vision and he refers to the fallen one as Babylon, right? But John has this vision in the first century. After Jesus has passed, the Romans are in charge. When Paul writes about Babylon, he's not writing about Babylon. It's code language so that those who are Christians in the empire of Rome knows, hey, you know how bad Babylon? That's exactly what Rome is. The oppressive regime we're under who I'm going to refer to, I'm not going to call him Rome because then we'd be under threat. I refer to them as Babylon. So it's with a wink that he gives his Jewish leaders to say, this is what the reality is in Revelation for the Roman Empire. And Revelation is an epic vision about prophetically pronouncing doom for the Roman Empire. Now this is revolutionary stuff. It's the kind of stuff that could get a prophet killed. And that's the very reason that they wrote in this way. It, this writing emerged out of a context of oppression. And we would do well to learn how to read it better in that context. Now, I was trying to think of a modern parallel to this to understand this idea of genre and how that works in different cultures and, 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 and people groups. And it came to me as I was listening to a podcast from one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell. If you've not picked up Revisionist History, his podcast, I'd encourage you to do so. It's one of my favorite parts of the week when I get to listen. And in a recent podcast entitled King of Tears, Gladwell makes the case for country music and why it makes you cry and rock and roll doesn't. Fascinating case he makes. He talks about Rolling Stone's list of the 50th, 50 best songs uh, in rock and roll history. The greatest songs. Hotel California by the Eagles comes in at 49. Tutti Frutti by Little Richard at 43, which of course has the signature lyric, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Wap Bop a Bop a Lop. Bam, boom. You got dancing in the street. Light my fire. Nirvana smells like teen spirit. Derek and the Dominoes, Layla. But the number one song, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. And in all those 50 songs, no one dies of a long illness. No marriages disintegrate. No one's killed on a battlefield. No one drinks in honky-tonks. There's a melancholy tone to country music. But there's also a specificity to this genre that rock and roll doesn't quite have. There's a vocabulary that allows country music to speak in shorthand to a culture that it understands well. And rock music doesn't do this in the same way that country music does. There's a difference between Wild Horses and Emmy Lou Harris's From Boulder to Birmingham. One is a generic song that would reach all the masses in the United States. But country music does what rock doesn't seem to be able to do. Country music speaks in a shared language. It assumes that metaphors will be picked up. It speaks with specificity. In all honesty, I, I prefer rock music to country music, but, but Gladwell's point is true. 
Country music speaks especially to those who grew up in the South in a shared language that speaks powerfully to a certain group of people, which is what makes country music almost identical to hip-hop music. And if you like country music, that likely isn't an assumption that you hold. But it's similar to country music because hip-hop isn't generic either. Hip-hop artists emerge from scenes in in the Bronx and in south-central L.A. It's specific. It's filled with metaphor. It's filled with a culture and a vocabulary that can be assumed. There are specialized genres out of specific cultures for a smaller segment of the population. And when you know your audience, when you're able to speak to a specific demographic with metaphor that others won't quite understand, all of a sudden you can open yourself up and lay yourself bare because you're among your own. And that just about sums up, if I could, Jewish apocalyptic literature. It's not generic. It's written to a specific group. And when we take it as this generic genre that we should all be able to understand and pin exactly what beast he's talking about, we read it wrong. We miss the context and the genre we're working with. We're foreigners to this literature. We're outsiders. And when we forget how foreign this kind of literature is to us as 21st century Christians, we're more likely to mistake the metaphors and the prophecies. If you don't like country music, it might just be because you aren't from the culture. And if you don't like hip-hop music, it might just be because you're not from the culture. And if you don't get Daniel 7 through 12, it might just be because you're not from the culture. You've never lived as an oppressed foreigner, perhaps longing to return to your homeland rather than dying in exile. And if you've lived there, maybe you understand this a bit more. Throughout the centuries, people have interpreted Daniel 7-12 through in a variety of ways. Some very creative interpretations. God, uh, in the story of Daniel, of course, sees that we see that he puts kings in charge and then he puts other kings in charge. We see that God puts Nebuchadnezzar in charge. He punishes Israel and their sin and allows them to go into exile to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is in charge. Then he puts Belshazzar, his son, in charge. And then he puts the Medes and the Persians in charge to a guy named Darius and eventually Darius gives way to a guy named Cyrus, who's a Persian. And this process, this revolution, will continue again and again. Some of the prophecies refer to the future kingdoms and kings that will follow the Medes and the Persians. There will be the Greeks, and then there will be other kings and kingdoms. And some people really love to spend their time trying to figure out exactly what this beast means and what this number of horns means. And if that's you, go for it. It just, I don't get it. We spend a lot of time sometimes on minutia, missing sometimes the more important message that's there. Because every generation seems to have different guesses about who these beasts are in Daniel 7 through 12. Take Daniel 7, for instance. Some think that the fourth beast there is Antiochus Epiphanes, who shows up in the 160s BC. He goes and he, he does an improper offering on the temple of the Lord there in Jerusalem. Makes a mess of things. The abomination that causes desolation that's in Daniel is referenced by Jesus a little bit later. Some think it's him who... The, This is referring to. In Matthew 24, though, Jesus refers back to Daniel's prophecy, and he seems to interpret the prophecy as if it's the Caesars, it's the Roman Empire that is going to come, and there's going to be destruction. Sure enough, in 70 AD, a few years after Jesus, that seems to happen in Jerusalem. But I read another website that had a different idea about things. They were able to kind of put all the things into a certain order and figure it out, and they figured out that Daniel's lion beast is actually referring to England whose coat of arms carries three lions. And the eagle's wings removed from the lion represent, of course, the United States, which we know separated from England during the American Revolution. Then Daniel's bear beast, that's got to refer to Russia, whose national symbol is 
you guessed it, a bear. And then there's Daniel's lion beast, leopard beast, I'm sorry. And Germany, Germany's the leopard beast. You know why? Because they named their tanks leopard tanks. And then Daniel's fourth beast, well, it's a future foreign government of some kind. Some have different guesses. Creative interpretations are not a new feature in the 21st century. This has been going on since this text was written. And I've noticed this about our fascinations with the last half of Daniel in the book of Revelation. We tend to scour these texts for hints of how the future will play out. Some of us obsess over the minutest of details and and believe they can determine the end of the world and how it's all going to play out, but we mustn't forget, in the midst of all that, the message that is clear in the book of Daniel. Daniel may be referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. He may be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, the Caesars of ancient Rome. He may be referring to Mussolini or Hitler or some future leader yet to be seen. But we ought to be careful when we seem more certain about something that was given to Daniel that he seems pretty uncertain about. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8, verse 27. I want you to just hear what Daniel does with this. We're confused? Well, it's interesting Daniel's response. This is Daniel 8, verse 27. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Beyond understanding. Maybe that should make us a little more humble about our beliefs about this, right? I'm not sure how many hours of research interpreting these chapters would result in all that much good, but there are themes in this vision that should bring us comfort. There are words of hope here. Because the reality is the world will continue to see kings who continue to overstep their boundaries. There will continue to be wars and rumors of wars. But the same hope that these apocalyptic prophecies of Daniel and Revelation offered to their original audiences are still words of hope for us in the 21st century. I'm uncertain of a lot of things in Daniel 7 through 12. There's a couple of verses in these chapters I wanted to share with you that I think do provide us hope and something we can lean on. This is Daniel 7, verses 11 to 14. Listen to this vision about the fourth beast, which who knows. This is Daniel 7, beginning in verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Does that sound like anything? And anyone who claims a title like that, son of man, one who comes from the clouds, I think this provides us hope. But the interpretation comes. I want to read this as well. This is verses 23 to 27. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court will sit, and His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. Daniel believed this truth his entire ministry. 
He believed that there was a kingdom that was an unshakable kingdom that was on its way. He believed that God was more in charge than what it seemed like at the time. He seemed so unconcerned with external political realities around him. I think the reason for that is because he knows who he is and he knows who his God is and what God's up to. He is a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's his identity. He's a son of the Most High God who created the world and is moving history toward a future where all shall be well. And even when God multiplies Israel's exiles, as Matt talked about last week from chapter 9, almost multiplies it seven times, it seems. There's still this sense that he never loses hope that God is up to something and his kingdom will not be shaken. And he learns to trust that even in exile, without a temple, that God could be found and that he was present among them even there. This may be the greatest learning of the exile for the people of God. Before, they trusted God to be in the tabernacle, and he wandered with them through the desert. Then they built a temple, and they knew that God was present in that temple. But the learning of exile they were forced to learn was, even when the temple's not there, there's no specific location you can go to hear from God. God is still present, even in this. And I wonder, in the midst of where things are in our world, in the midst of where things are in your world, if that's a hard thing to believe as well. That there are places that you go, there are memories you can have where God spoke. But maybe right now in this season, you're doubting that and you're thinking, if I could just go back to that place, maybe there's a sacred space that God speaks more than others. The reminder of the exile that the people of God learn is God can be trusted and he can be found even when the temple is not present. It's a hard thing for Israel to learn, but it suits them well a few centuries later when this guy named Jesus shows up on the scene. You remember how he refers to himself? The Son of Man. This is the promise that Daniel had given them. And they'd opened themselves up to believe that God could be found outside temples made by human hands. And now they're shaking hands with the very presence of God. I long to be as certain of these things as Daniel is. How about you? In the midst of the uncertainty of this world to know exactly who I am and what I'm called to be and that God is present even in the most God-forsaken times in my life. I know he's there and he's moving and he's moving things forward to when all shall be well. There is a kingdom that will destroy whatever beasts are out there. So I want to end today with several messages from the book of Daniel that I think we can hang our hat on. It's kind of a summary of the whole series in a way. What are the three things that I think are are maybe the most important takeaways for us in our time and our age? Number one, human rulers will continue to become beasts when they rule unjustly and fail to acknowledge God as king. This will continue to happen. It happened in in David's day with Nebuchadnezzar and all the kings that were there. At one point, they proclaim God as king because they see his power, but the next chapter, they wind up believing that they're more in charge than they should be. And this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is believing that the created things are above the creator who created them. And any time that happens, that's idolatry and it results in problems. This is not just about beasts who are kings. Any time that we live our lives and we think we can trust our wisdom rather than God's or we trust in created things rather than creator, it's idolatry and chaos is the result. We begin to act like beasts. We act in ways we never would otherwise. And you've seen this on your TVs recently. It's a disruption of the order that God created from the beginning, calling all things good. It happened with rulers, but it happens with us. But this will continue to happen. Chaos is is the result in the world. Wars will continue, and so will injustice. Number two, one day God will confront the beast, and he will establish his kingdom and his rule. 
And on that day, in the words of Paul, every knee, every single knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't matter how in charge you think you are today. One, knee, one day you're not going to have your knee bowed to by others. No, you are going to bow your knee. All of us will. Every beast that disrupts the order and the chaos of things, God will bring his kingdom and his rule. We have to believe that truth. It's hard to believe in the midst of the world as it is sometimes, isn't it? That's the promise that God gives. And number three, as followers of Jesus, we are called to remain faithful to God's kingdom, regardless of the earthly kingdom that we live in. We should never confuse any earthly kingdom with the kingdom that God promises. Anytime we do that, we're disrupting the order of what God promises. In the end, any beast that you align with is going to be overthrown, is what Daniel says, because a kingdom's coming and the Son of Man's the one who reigns on that throne. So if you want to put all your hope in some kind of earthly kingdom, that's something you can choose to do, but it's not a good investment. Because in the end, all those kingdoms will be turned over and God will reign on his throne. We bow to no king except King Jesus. The details may change. But these messages never will. And it worked for Daniel, and my trust is it can work for us as well. I hope this series has been a help to you. I hope it's been a challenge to you. I think there's still this tension that I struggle with. of When do you stand up? When do you speak up? When do you act against the call of the culture? But one of the times that you wade into the gray and you find a way to find influence, Daniel did both of those things, and he seemed to have discernment of when to do it at the right moment. My prayer is that as the people of God, we can do the same. There's some things we don't need to be as offended by as we are. And we need to learn to to wade into those difficult things and trust that God's doing something amidst it. But there are other things we need to stand up and we need to speak against we need to act against. And we need to say, we won't bow to your dictates, King. And And the wisdom to know that difference is the wisdom that God calls the church to through our discernment. My prayer is that as we move through the centuries, as new kings arise and others fall, as wars and rumors of wars continue, our trust will be in the one who promises that no beast will win in the end. As one of my favorite professors has said, the message of the book of Revelation is, um, God wins, pick a side, and don't be stupid. And in a way, I think it's the same message that Daniel would say to us today. In the win, in God's kingdom wins. So pick a side, and don't be stupid. I think I'll close with that. Let's pray as we close our time this morning. God, I thank you so much for the words of Daniel, the words that inspire us and challenge us, God. This study has caused me to look and and, and try to believe the words that Daniel says, that you're more in control than it seems. And yet it also calls us to participation in that reign that you have, God, to not be quiet when we must speak up, to call forth your future vision of your kingdom, God, and to live into it. God, I pray more and more as a community of faith, we can be a people who put on display God's future right now in the present. That we can be a people who show what your world is supposed to look like, and through that the world will look and wonder, why do they live like that, and why is it so attractive as compared to all these other alternatives? God, may we find real significance in you, and not this artificial stuff that's around us all the time. We pray for discernment, God, as a people. Pray for action when it's needed, and God, we want to be your people boldly when those days come. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.